Tertia Morganum by P. D. Asvinsky, read by Alice Flanagan, Chapter 20. In the book, A New Era of Thought, concerning which I have already much to say, in the interesting chapter, Space, the Scientific Basis of Altruism and Religion, Hinton says, and Asvinsky quotes, When we come upon infinity in any mode of our thought, it is a sign that that mode of thought is dealing with a higher reality than it is adapted for, and in struggling to represent it, we can only do so by an infinite number of terms, of realities of a higher order. Truly, what is infinity, as the ordinary mind represents to itself? This is the abyss, the bottomless pit in which the mind falls, after having risen to heights to which it is not native. Let us imagine for a moment that a man begins to feel infinity in everything. Every thought, every idea leads him to the realisation of infinity. This will inevitably happen to a man approaching an understanding of a higher order of reality. But what will he feel under such circumstances? He will feel a precipice, an abyss everywhere, no matter where he looks, and experience indeed an incredible horror, fear and sadness. And Dispensky quotes, An intolerable sadness is the very first experience of the neophyte in occultism, says the author of Light on the Path. We have already examined into the manner in which the two-dimensional being might approach to a comprehension of the third dimension, but we have never asked ourselves the question, what would it feel, beginning to sense the third dimension, beginning to be conscious of a new world environing it? First of all, it would feel astonishment and fright, fright approaching horror, because in order to find the new world, it must lose the old one. Let us imagine the predicament of an animal in which flashes of human consciousness have begun to appear. What will it be conscious of first of all? First of all, that's its old world, the world of the animal, its comfortable, habitual world, the one in which it was born, to which it has become accustomed, and which it imagines to be the only real one, is crumbling away and falling all around it. Everything that before seemed real becomes false, delusive, fantastic, unreal. The impression of the unreality of all its environment will be very strong. Until such a being shall learn to comprehend the reality of another higher order, until it shall understand that behind the crumbling old world one infinitely more beautiful and new is opening up, considerable time will necessarily pass. And during all this time, a being in whom this new consciousness is in the process of being born must pass from one abyss of despair to another, from one negation to another. It must repudiate everything around itself. Only by the repudiation of everything will the possibility of entering into a new life be realised. With the beginning of the gradual loss of the old world, the logic of the two-dimensional being, or that which stood for it for logic, will suffer continual violation, and its strongest impression will be that there is no logic at all. No laws of any sort even exist. Formerly, when it was an animal, it reasoned, this is this. This house is my own. That is that. That house is strange. This is not that. The strange house is not my own. The strange house and its own house the animal regards as different objects, having nothing in common, as the house and a tree. But now it will surprisingly understand that the strange house and its own house are equally houses. How will it express this in its language of perceptions? Strictly speaking, it will not be able to express it at all, 
because it is impossible to express concepts in the language of an animal. The animal will simply mix up the sensations of the strange house and its own house. Confusedly, it will begin to feel some new properties in houses, and along with this it will feel less clearly those properties which made the strange house strange. Simultaneously with this, the animal will begin to sense new properties which it did not know before. As a result, it will undoubtedly experience the necessity for a system of generalization of these new properties. The necessity for a new logic expressing the relations of the new order of things. But having no concepts, it will not be in a position to construe the axioms of Aristotelian logic and will express its impression of the new order in the form of the entirely absurd proposition. This is that. Further, let us imagine that to the animal with the rudimentary logic expressing its sensations, this is this, that is that, this is not that. Somebody tries to prove that two different objects, two houses, its own and a strange one, are similar, that they represent one and the same thing, that they are both houses. The animal will never credit the similarity. For it is the two houses, its own, where it is fed, and the strange one, where it is beaten if it enters, will remain entirely different. There will be nothing in common in them for it, and the effort to prove to it the similarity of these two houses will lead to nothing until it senses this itself. Then, sensing confusedly the idea of the likeness of two different objects, and being without concepts, the animal will express this as something illogical from its own point of view. The idea, this and that are similar objects, the articulate two-dimensional being, will translate into the language of its logic, in the shape of the formula. This is that, and of course will pronounce it as an absurdity, and that the sensation of the new order of things leads to logical absurdities. But it will be unable to express that which it senses in any other way. We are in exactly the same position, when we dead awaken, i.e. when we, men, come to the realisation of that other life, to the comprehension of higher things. The same fright, the same loss of the real, the same impression of utter and never-ending illogicality will afflict us. In order to realise the new world, we must understand the new logical order of things. Our usual logic assists us in the investigation of the relations of the phenomenal world only. Many attempts have been made to define what logic is, but logic is just as essentially undefinable as is mathematics. What is mathematics? The science of magnitudes. What is logic? The science of concepts. But these are not definitions. They are only the translation of the name. Mathematics, or the science of magnitudes, is that system which studies the quantitative relations between things. Logic, or the science of concepts, is that system which studies the qualitative, categorical relations between things. Logic has been built up quite in the same way as mathematics. As with logic, so also with mathematics, at least the generally known mathematics of finite and constant numbers, both were deduced by us from the observation of the phenomena of our world. Generalising our observations, we gradually discovered those relations which we called the fundamental laws of the world. In logic, these fundamental laws are included in the axioms of Aristotle and of Bacon. A is A. That which was A will be A. A is not not A. That which was not A will not be A. Everything is either A or not A. Everything will be either A or not A. 
The logic of Aristotle and Bacon, developed and supplemented by their many followers, deals with concepts only. The word logos, this is the object of logic. An idea, in order to become the object of logical reasoning, in order to be subjected to the laws of logic, must be expressed in a word. That which cannot be expressed in a word cannot enter into a logical system. Moreover, a word can enter into a logical system, can be subjected to the logical laws, only as a concept. A word as such may also have another meaning in addition to the concept which it is usually associated. A word may have a symbolic or allegorical meaning, may contain within itself certain music or a definite emotional tone. But all of this cannot enter into a logical system. No matter what symbolical, allegorical, musical or emotional meaning a word may have, in a logical construction it will enter in its exact logical meaning, i.e. as a concept. At the same time we know very well that not everything can be expressed in words. In our life and in our feelings there is much that cannot be expressed in concepts. Thus it is clear that even at the present moment, at the present stage of our development, not everything can be entirely logical for us. There are many things which in their substance are outside of logic altogether. This includes the entire region of feelings, emotions, religion. All art is just one entire illogicality, and as we shall presently see, mathematics, the most exact of sciences, is entirely illogical. If we compare the axioms to the logic of Aristotle and Bacon with the axioms of mathematics as it is commonly known, we find between them complete similarity, the axioms of logic. A is A. A is not not A. Everything is either A or not A. Fully correspond to the fundamental axioms of mathematics, to the axioms of identity and difference. Every magnitude is equal to itself. The part is less than the whole. Two magnitudes, equal separately to a third, are equal to each other, etc. The similarity between the axioms of mathematics and those of logic extends very far and this permits us to draw a conclusion about their similar origin. The laws of mathematics and the laws of logic, these are the laws of the reflection of the phenomenal world in our consciousness. Just as the axioms of logic can deal with concepts only, and are related solely to them, so the axioms of mathematics apply to finite and constant magnitudes only, and are related solely to them. These axioms are untrue in relation to infinite and variable magnitudes, just as the axioms of logic are untrue in relation to emotions, to symbols, to the musicality and the hidden meaning of words. What does this mean? It means that the axioms of logic and of mathematics are deduced by us from the observation of phenomena, i.e. of the phenomenal world, and represent in themselves a certain conditional incorrectness, which is necessary for the knowledge of the unreal world. As has been said before, we have in reality two mathematics. One, the mathematics of finite and constant numbers, represents a quite artificial construction for the solution of problems based on conditional data. The chief of these conditional data consists in the fact that in problems of this mathematics, there is always taken the T of the universe only i.e. one section only of the universe is taken, which section is never taken in conjunction with another one. This mathematics of finite and constant magnitude studies an artificial universe, 
and is in itself something especially created on the basis of our observation of phenomena, and serves for the simplification of these observations. Beyond phenomena, the mathematics of finite and constant numbers cannot go. It is dealing with an imaginary world, with imaginary magnitudes. The other, the mathematics of infinite and the variable magnitudes, represent something entirely real, built upon the reasonings in regard to a real world. The first is related to the world of phenomena, which represents in itself nothing other than our incorrect apprehension and perception of the world. The second is related to the world of noumena, which represents in itself the world as it is. The first is unreal. It exists in our consciousness, in our imagination. The second is real. It expresses the relations of the real world. Transfinite numbers, so-called, may serve as an example of real mathematics, violating the fundamental axioms of our mathematics and logic. By transfinite numbers, as their name implies, is meant numbers beyond infinity. Infinity, as represented by the sign, when the Spensky has inserted an 8 on its side, as the symbol for infinity, is the mathematical expression with which, as such, it is possible to perform all operations, divide, multiply, raise to powers. It is possible to raise infinity to the power of infinity. And Spensky has inserted a symbol for infinity with a smaller infinity symbol above it and to the right representing the power. These will be on the website. This magnitude is the infinite number of times greater than the simple infinity, and at the same time they are both equal. Infinity equals infinity to the power infinity, and this is the most remarkable property of transfinite numbers. You may perform them with any operations whatsoever that will change in a corresponding manner, remaining at the same time equal. This violates the fundamental laws of mathematics accepted for finite numbers. After a change, the finite number cannot be equal to itself. But here we see how changing the transfinite number remains equal to itself. After all, transfinite numbers are entirely real. We can find examples corresponding to the expression infinity and even infinity to the power of infinity and infinity to the power infinity to the power infinity in our world. Let us take a line, any segment of a line. We know that the number of points on this line is equal to infinity, for a point has no dimension. If our segment is equal to one inch, and beside it we shall imagine a segment a mile long, then in the little segment each point will correspond to a point in the large one. The number of points in the segment one inch long is infinite, the number of points in the segment one mile long is also infinite. We get infinity equals infinity. Let us now imagine a square, one side of which is given a segment A. The number of lines in a square is infinite. The number of points on each line is infinite. Consequently, the number of points in a square is equal to infinity multiplied by itself an infinite number of times, infinity to the power infinity. This magnitude is undoubtedly infinitely greater than the first one, infinity, and at the same time they are equal, as all infinite magnitudes are equal, because if there is an infinity, then it is one and cannot change. Upon the square, a squared, let us construct a cube. This cube consists of an infinite number of squares, just as a square consists of an infinite number of lines and a line of an infinite number of points. 
Consequently, the number of points in a cube, A cubed, is equal to infinity to the power infinity to the power infinity. This expression is equal to the expression infinity to the power infinity and to infinity, i.e. this means that infinity continues to grow, remaining at the same time unchanged. And Dispensky's asterisk this. This paragraph and the preceding are open to criticism from the technical standpoint. It is probable that the author sacrificed technical exactness in his desire to give those who are not initiated into the mysteries of the mathematics a clear and, as it were, tangible illustration of transfinite numbers. Those readers who are not professional mathematicians and desire to know more about this subject may find a clear and simple exposition of the properties of transfinite numbers in, and this is Asterix, Introduction to Mathematical Philosophy by Bertrand Russell Macmillan. And that is the end of the asterisk. Aspensky continues. Thus, in transfinite numbers, we see that two magnitudes equal separately to the third cannot be equal to each other. Generally speaking, we see that the fundamental axioms of our mathematics do not work there, are not there valid. We have therefore a full right to establish the law that the fundamental axioms of mathematics enumerated above are not applicable to transfinite numbers but are applicable and valid only for finite numbers. We may also say that the fundamental axioms of our mathematics are valid for constant magnitudes only, or in other words, they demand unity of time and unity of acting agents. That is, each magnitude is equal to itself at a given moment, but if we take a magnitude which varies and take it in different moments, then it will not be equal to itself. Of course, we may say that changing, it becomes another magnitude, that it is given magnitude only so long as it does not change. But this is precisely the thing that I'm talking about. The axioms of our usual mathematics are applicable to finite and constant magnitudes only. Thus, quite in opposition to the usual view, we must admit that mathematics of finite and constant magnitudes is unreal, i.e. that it deals with the unreal relations of unreal magnitudes, while the mathematics of infinite and fluent magnitudes is real i.e. that it deals with the real relations of real magnitudes. Truly, the greatest magnitude of the first mathematics has no dimension whatever. It is equal to zero or a point in comparison to any magnitude of the second mathematics, all magnitudes of which, despite their diversity, are equal among themselves. Thus, both here, as in logic, the axioms of a new mathematics appear as absurdities. A magnitude cannot be equal to itself. A part cannot be equal to the whole, or it cannot be greater than the whole. One of two equal magnitudes can be infinitely greater than another. All different magnitudes are equal among themselves. A complete analogy is observed between the axioms of mathematics and those of logic. The logical unit, a concept, possesses all the properties of a finite and constant magnitude. The fundamental axioms of mathematics and logic are essentially one and the same. They are correct under the same conditions, and under the same conditions they cease to be correct. Without any exaggeration, we may say that the fundamental axioms of mathematics and of logic are correct only just as long as mathematics and logic deal with magnitudes which are artificial, conditional, and which do not exist in nature. The truth is that in nature there are no finite, constant magnitudes, just as also there are no concepts. The finite constant magnitude and the concept, these are conditional abstractions, 
not reality, but merely the sections of reality, so to speak. How shall we reconcile the idea of the absence of constant magnitudes with the idea of an immobile universe? At first sight, one appears to contradict the other, but in reality this contradiction does not exist. Not this universe is immobile, but the greater universe, the world of four dimensions, of which we know that the perpetually moving section, called the three-dimensional ultimate sphere. Already, we have analysed in detail how the idea of motion follows from our time sense, i.e. from the imperfection of our space sense. Were our space sense more perfect in relation to any given object, say, to the body of a given man, we could embrace all life and time from birth to death. Then within the limits of this, embrace that life would be for us a constant magnitude. But now, at every given moment of it, it is not for us a constant, but a variable magnitude. That which we call a body does not exist in reality. It is only a section of that four-dimensional body which we never see. We ought always remember that our entire three-dimensional world does not exist in reality. It is a creation of our imperfect senses, the result of their imperfection. This is not the world, but merely that which we see of the world, the three-dimensional world. This is the four-dimensional world observed through a narrow slit of our senses. Therefore, all magnitudes which we regard as such in the three-dimensional world are not real magnitudes, but merely artificially assumed. They do not exist really in the same way that the present does not exist really. This has been dwelt on before. By the present we designate the transition from the future into the past, but this transition has no extension. Therefore the present does not exist, only the future and the past exist. Thus constant magnitudes in the three-dimensional world are only abstractions, just as motion in the three-dimensional world is, in substance, an abstraction. In the three-dimensional world there is no change, no motion. In order to think motion we already need the four-dimensional world. The three-dimensional world does not exist in reality, or it exists only during one ideal moment. In the next ideal moment there already exists another three-dimensional world. Therefore the magnitude A in the following moment is already not A, but B, in the next C, and so forth to infinity. It is equal to itself in one moment only. In other words, within the limits of each ideal moment the axioms of mathematics are true. For the comparison of two ideal moments, they are merely conditional, as the logic of Bacon is conditional in the comparison with the logic of Aristotle. In time, i.e. in relation to variable magnitudes, from the standpoint of the ideal moment, they are untrue. The idea of constancy or variability emanates from the impotence of our limited reason to comprehend a thing otherwise than by a section. If we would comprehend a thing in four dimensions, let us say human body from birth to death, then it will be the whole and constant, the section of which we call a changing in time human body. A moment of life, i.e. the body as we know it in the three-dimensional world, is a point on an infinite line. Could we comprehend this body as a whole, then we would know it as an absolutely constant magnitude, with all its multifarious of forms, states and positions. But then to this constant magnitude the axioms of our mathematics and logic would be inapplicable, because it would be an infinite magnitude. We cannot comprehend this infinite magnitude, 
who comprehend always its sections only, and our mathematics and logic are related to this imaginary section of the universe. End of chapter 20